All right. Today we have got a great section of verses to look at. And if you have grown up in the church, you may be familiar with the story of Ananias and Sapphira. And if you're not, that's totally fine. But this is where we're at in our sermon series, walking through the New Testament book of Acts. So Acts, uh, end of chapter 4 and into chapter 5 is where we're going to be this morning. Uh, so if you've got a device or you've got a Bible, uh, you can swipe or turn there. Otherwise, follow along on the screen behind me. Now, if you're familiar with this story, you may wonder why I would call this a great section. Uh, because I don't think most people run to this chunk of verses in the New Testament. But hopefully, I can unpack this story in a helpful way for us. But we shall see about that. As a means of review, I want to start by looking at the end of chapter 4 in some verses. So I want to read just a few verses at the end of uh, Acts 4, and then I'll kind of tie in where we've been thus far in this series to highlight a couple of themes. So Acts 4, verse 32 is where we're going to start. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold the field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Okay, so these verses help to hit on a few themes that have been present throughout the, se- the series thus far. So the first thing I want to I point out is in the, or at the end of verse 32, where it says, they had everything in common. So if you remember at the end of Acts chapter 2, this same phrase was utilized as it described how, how Jesus' church was unified. And we talked last week about the basis for this unity, which is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the one that unifies. So at the beginning of Acts, Jesus ascended, okay? Which basically means that God the Son, Jesus, went to be with God the Father, okay? He left the earth to go be with his Father. And then after this, Jesus sent the Holy Spirit to come upon his church, all right? So the Holy Spirit then is God coming to live in his people, all right? To help his people, to help us, to unite us. So then Christians, anyone who is saved by Jesus, then have this commonality, the Holy Spirit. So God's Spirit leads us then to orient our lives around Jesus, to orient our lives around the priorities that Jesus lays out. So the early church was varied in personality, in preferences, in perspectives. But what we read here in Acts 2 and in Acts 4 is that they set all of this aside so that Jesus was primary. Jesus, then in his church, was bringing people together, unifying them. So one way that that the Bible talks about this is he was creating a new family, 
a family that was bound together by something stronger than blood. So you oftentimes hear the phrase, blood is thicker than mud, right? Or maybe not oftentimes. I heard that a couple times in my life, okay? Blood is thicker than mud, okay? But Jesus is creating a family that's bound together by something stronger than blood, which is grace. Grace is stronger than blood. So we oftentimes think, man, we've got these allegiances to our families, and then we're like, man, I I don't like my family at times, or my family does really dumb stuff sometimes, or I'm annoyed by these things. And then you can see fractures that happen. But what the gospel presents in Jesus, through Jesus, is that grace is stronger than blood. Okay? So a bunch of people like us, who have very different perspectives and preferences, can come together and we're intended to function like family, despite all those differences, because grace is that powerful. It does unite people in this way. And this is what the gospel does then. It's powerful. It's something that's bigger than us. The gospel is something we're intended to get caught up in and to shape us and to unite us. And this is what we see happening in the early church. Grace is shaping this community. And so what we're reading in Acts 4 is that people saw a need amongst their friends. They heard of a need. And then someone would generously sell valuables of their own to provide for the needy. So what we see is that people are experiencing the love of Jesus. It's shaping them. And then they're being moved to love other people. So love then produced more love. Generosity was contagious. Grace was multiplying in that community. And this was really the picture of the early church. They had everything in common. So God's Spirit was moving. And what we've read throughout the first number of chapters is that the church was exploding. Thousands of people were trusting in Jesus. And Jesus' followers then were not shy about pointing to Jesus as the reason for all of this. They're not getting up in front of people and saying, it's because of my dynamic personality that all of this is happening. They're relentlessly pointing to Jesus. It was his movement. It was his church. And it's still true today as well. And so we read in verse 33, with great power the apostles were giving their testimony the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. So we're reading of the centrality of Jesus' resurrection. We talk about this often here at Center Church, right? His cross and his resurrection. His followers are preaching about this repeatedly, even in the face of threats. Okay, so remember Peter and John had been arrested for preaching about Jesus' resurrection, and then they were threatened to stop doing it anymore. And what we read here is that they've decided they cannot stop. They will not stop. This news has captured them. The gospel has taken hold of their lives. And it says, great grace was upon them all. So grace is an undeserved favor, an undeserved gift. 
these people understand what Jesus has done for them is not because of anything that they've done on their, on their own. The resurrection of Jesus then has become their story. It's not just a story. It's not just a story that they talk about. This is their story. They have been welcomed into this story. They've been made alive. Grace has marked them in a profound way. And to be really clear, it's not just that church. It's not just the early church. It's Jesus' church. Today as well. This is a glimpse of Jesus' church. In a sense, it can be kind of a mirror for us. This is what grace does to people. It grabs hold of them and changes them in profound ways. So maybe you're hearing this, or maybe you read this, and it causes you to feel, at least spiritually, a little thirsty. Maybe you feel a little wanting. You, you might wonder, why don't you feel that? Or why doesn't my life look like that, in a sense? And so, I never want to be part of a church context where we just make assumptions, okay? So when we come to verses like this, depictions like this, I want us to wrestle with this. If you think you've been a Christian for 40 years, I want you to ask hard questions, of yourselves. I want to wrestle, seriously wrestle with these things. So it's a Christian practice to ensure you are in the faith. That's normal Christian living. Okay? Second Corinthians thirteen five says this Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Don't just assume Test yourselves. Look at Acts 4, verses 32 to 37 as a mirror. Is this what my life looks like? Because this is clearly what Jesus' church is intended to look like. So we don't want to be content to be some people who say that we are Christians and then function like a country club. Dress up once in a while. Okay, we don't really dress up here, okay? But dress up once in a while pay some dues so we can be part of it, have some formal parties once in a while. That's not what we're about here, okay? We are not trying to be a country club. We don't want to put up pictures of people and walk by and say, oh, that person was really great. We've got one picture, and we're looking at Jesus all the time, and we, we want our lives to be formed by him and to become like him so we become like Christ, So we want to be part of a movement of grace that changes people's lives, that sees Jesus for who he is, that is experiencing resurrection. We're not talking about the one person that became a Christian six years ago. We want to be part of a movement. This is happening over and over and over And maybe we've not really been part of context like that. But this is part of why we want to orient our lives around Jesus, why one of our core values is mission. We want to go to people who don't know Jesus, who need Jesus. We don't want to be scared of having hard conversations with ourselves or with them. And so it's good for us 
to really seriously wrestle with these things. We, we should do this in our community groups this upcoming week. We should have hard conversations with one another. Be honest with each other about this. Okay, then at the end of chapter 4, we're given this detail about someone named Joseph or Barnabas. So this is a specific example of one person. I, I wonder, like, why him, right? Why this guy? Because it says other people are selling their fields, they're selling stuff, and, but we get this example. So maybe it's because Barnabas shows up again later in Acts. That could be part of it. Um, but really, the reason this is going on is because it serves as a contrast to what is next, what we're going to read in chapter 5. So in a moment, we're going to jump to chapter 5, but let me make just a couple summarizing points from this first section here at the end of chapter 4. So first of all, I want to be clear. This is, what we're reading is not a call for everyone to just go and sell all their possessions, okay? We've talked earlier in this series about description and prescription. Is this prescribing something for all of us to do? Because if we all go and sell all our stuff, right, then none of us will have stuff, right? So it's not describing what we're supposed, or prescribing what we're supposed to do, and then we're all needy, right? And then we all have to go to another church and ask someone else, like ask that church to start selling their stuff, right? So it's not prescribing. This is describing. This is describing what the church ought to look like. Look like at that time, and so this should happen. So in a sense, there is prescription, but it's not all of us with everything, okay? So there's tension here. There's balance. So I just want us to understand, like, there's description going on here primarily with some prescription as well. Okay, then secondly, I just want to say that generosity that we're, the generosity we're seeing here is being compelled by grace, not by obligation, okay? These people aren't being forced to sell their stuff. They're not being forced to give this stuff, okay? This is voluntary, all right? So they're choosing to do this. They've been moved by grace, and this is the effect, the result of grace in their lives, all right? And, and so I want to point out one quick law-grace distinction. We talk about law and grace here a lot, right? So I want to just highlight one law-grace distinction here quickly. So there's this reality that we, we could say, right, well, let me just read this. It says in verse 32, it says, no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, okay? No one said that any of the things that they owned w- were their own. Now, that's grace that says that. Because we could go and we could look in the laws at that time and we could find the law says this person owns this field. This person owns this thing, right? So the law would stipulate that certain people own certain things. But the people are saying, I don't own that. I don't count that as my own. And in this, we're getting a beautiful picture of how grace overruns law. And this is what we see in the Bible, right? We see the old covenant, the law, being overrun by the new covenant, grace. Grace is better than law. And we get just a little glimpse here. 
Okay. Acts chapter 5. I'm going to read these verses, and then we are going to have some fun unpacking these. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of, a, of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. All right. So just a couple of quick hits here as we get going, and then we'll get into kind of the main teaching emphasis of this section. So it's really easy for us to read this story and be like, oh man, what's going on here? And I, I think, if we're honest, I think we can read this story and it can kind of um, cause us to trust God less, to question God in a sense. Because this feels, this feels kind of Old Testament, right? Like, oh man, God's being harsh here. What's, what's actually going on? So I want to encourage us to let this story increase our trust in Jesus and the Bible. Okay, the author Luke is honest. If, if the biblical authors are just trying to pull something over on us, they won't include this story in here. This is honesty, and this is truth. They're not hardy or hiding the hard parts, okay? And there's hard stuff in life, and we shouldn't shy away from it. We shouldn't try and hide it as well. And, and this is why we preach through books of the Bible, okay? It's really easy if we just kind of cherry-pick those parts of the Bible, like, oh, I'm going to preach on this and this and this, and then I can avoid this section of verses. But this is why we preach through books of the Bible, because then we've got to be confronted with this stuff. I've got to help us wrestle with this. We've got to come to terms with this, because if you, in your mind, you're like, man, I don't know. I don't know about this God. I don't know about that story, and if we never address it, like, that stuff always lurks in your heart, right? So we've got to be able to wrestle through these things. So my hope is that this story can actually increase our trust in Jesus and the Bible. Secondly, then, so this story seems a bit out of place, right? The church was thriving. It was exploding. Really good stuff was happening. 
Now, we've read there was some threats from outside the church, right? Peter and John were arrested, threatened, don't do this anymore, right? Okay, but now this is the first threat from inside the church, okay? So this is kind of a, a different reality for us. Okay, so I said this is describing something, not prescribing something, right? So if this is a story that we are intended to learn from, What do we do with this? What do we do with this story? Because it sure seems like Ananias and Sapphira died because they didn't give enough. So how do we know when we give enough? It's actually really scary, right? Because there's no metric. We don't know other than like sell everything and follow Jesus, right? That's what we've got. So let's start with the fact that people we're giving voluntarily, okay? This is important for us to acknowledge. So there wasn't a bar that they didn't jump over, okay? There wasn't an obscure rule that they were unaware of. They weren't obligated to give all of the money. What we see happening in the early church is people naturally responding to the gospel with generosity. They encounter Jesus' grace. This shapes them, and so then they are being generous with other people. So the issue is not that they kept some for themselves. That's not the issue. Now, we also read that they are accused of lying. So, okay, this is helpful. They're sinning, all right? That can be helpful, but also scary because we all know that we've lied, every single one of us. This is a room full of liars right now. And so, maybe even this morning, you told a lie or you shaded the truth. And so, we read this story and we might be wondering, like, am am I going to walk out of this building this morning? Like, what's going to happen? here. Okay, so I'm going to go to a commentary here, and I hope that this can be helpful for us. So when it's describing Ananias and Sapphira, it says that they kept back some money, okay? So let me read this. The word translated kept back often refers to misappropriation or even theft of funds, and that the fault of Ananias and Sapphira was that they declared the money gained from the sale of their property belonged to the community and then kept some of the community's money for themselves. Okay, so the idea is Ananias and Sapphira had stated the land that they were selling was selling for a certain amount and that the church was going to receive that amount. But then they decided to keep some back for themselves, while still asserting that first amount. So we're left then in the same spot of, they're they're liars, right? How do we still work this out? They died because they lied, essentially. And I think this could terrify a lot of us. But I think we need to look closer, because I think that's just too simplistic. That's just looking at the surface. All right? What I want you to hear clearly is that heaven is going to be filled with prolific liars. That's true. Jesus has saved me. And I have lied many times in my life. 
Heaven will be filled with prolific liars. It's not justifying lying, but what I'm saying is it can't, what, what we're learning from this story can't be they died because they lied. It can't be that simple. There must be something deeper going on in this story. So we can't just end our sermon right now and say, don't lie or you're in danger of God killing you today. We can't stop there. Or we also can't say, give more money to the church. Otherwise, who knows, right? Like these are the moralistic teachings where a lot of churches will arrive, right? Stop lying, okay? We would affirm, like, lying is not reflective of someone who's trusting in Jesus, all right? But we're not going to end there. So that's not, because none of this leads to heart change, all right? And it's not profitable at all. So what's actually below the surface here? What's behind someone lying? Someone lies because they want to look better than they are. That's why someone lies. Lying is evidence of something deeper, uglier, more deadly. So lying, we would say, is a symptom. All right? Lying is the symptom of something deeper. Behind the lie is a heart that's trying to make itself into something. Behind the lie is a heart that's trying to make itself into something. So we could say lying is a symptom of a works-based righteousness. Lying is a symptom of a works-based perspective. Ananias and Sapphira were wanting to be recognized for doing something they didn't actually do. Okay, we're selling our land for $1,000, but we're only given two fifty, dollars and this is our little plan, right? They want to be recognized for selling it for the greater amount. And they want everything that comes with that then. The affirmation. The approval. So a works-based righteousness is predicated on someone performing. Someone getting credit for being impressive in some way. So works-based righteousness is all about earning. Works-based righteousness is based on self. So really, works-based righteousness is trusting in yourself. That's what a works-based righteousness is. And this is the lie of Satan that we go all the way back to Genesis 3. Did God really say? But here's the reality for all of us. If that's how we live and function, we know there's plenty of days when our performance lacks. And if you function as a works-based person, those days when you suck spiritually, you're filled with despair. And you think God disowns you. And there's no good news in that whatsoever. Works-based righteousness is also what we would say law, right? Do this and you'll be blessed. Don't do this and you'll be cursed. The appeal to this way of thinking and living is that if we are really disciplined, then we are the hero. We get the applause. We get to take credit 
Ananias and Sapphira were wooed by the allure of being seen by others as sufficient and impressive. So they were wanting to appear generous. But generosity is never about increasing a platform. Generosity is never about increasing ourselves. Generosity is about coming down, coming under people, caring for people, lifting them up while we go down. We're decreasing while others increase when we're being generous. We're being taught in our culture that success and happiness is found in increasing our name, in increasing our influence, our salary, our status, whatever it might be. And so we set out to oftentimes unconsciously make much of ourselves. You've got to come to grips with this. It's natural for us to want to make much of ourselves. And it will always lead down a dead-end road. This is why we've continually got to die to ourselves. And, and this is true, this idea of making much of ourselves, this applies even to generosity. Like even at times when we're, tr- we're wanting to be generous, this can also be about our increase as well. I'm, I don't want you to hear me say, okay, don't be generous. That's not what I'm saying. I want to get down to the root, right? What's driving us? Okay. Now, because this passage is talking about giving money to the church, I'm going to do this for a moment, okay? So we don't talk a lot about money here at Center Church. It happened last week. Funny thing, two weeks in a row, right? So you get two weeks in a row, but we don't, we don't do it a lot, um, but we as overseers feel like we want to care for you as a church. It's our responsibility to do this more than we have. And so I want to say a few words about this th- uh, this morning. So the gospel will create generosity. The gospel will create sacrificial generosity. Center Church is never going to be a place where we are going to shame people or guilt people into giving. But that doesn't mean we won't talk about it. That we shouldn't wrestle with this. Because Jesus talked much about money and its dangers. And so if we're just going to ignore this and not talk about it, we as leaders are not caring for you well. We want to help you wrestle with this to examine our hearts in this regard. Now, if you're newer here, I should preface these comments with this. I don't know, the overseers don't know who gives what. Okay? So, as I'm saying these, I'm not looking at you and and trying to communicate something by looking at you. Right? I've made this choice because I want to be free. I'm going to pastor the person who's giving nothing the same as I'm pastoring the person who's giving the most. And I'm oblivious to all this. And really, that goes against so much of how our culture functions, right? Why wouldn't you, pastor, give more time to the person who gives more? That's not embodying grace, right? And we want grace to permeate everything. 
that we're doing. Okay. We talked last week about how we as a church were given three unexpected gifts from outside of Center Church at the end of the calendar year. And those gifts were really helpful for us. And I am thankful for that. And I hope you are as well. But we also want us to mature as followers of Jesus. And it doesn't matter where you're at, where you're at on the scale with giving. We want all of us to mature in this regard. We want all of us to grow in being generous as Jesus has been generous towards us. Okay? Jesus has been generous towards us. And we want you then, your lives, to reflect that. We've been sacrificially loved. We want to sacrificially love others as well. So, also, in talking about this, we don't want you to feel sheepish. We don't want you to feel like you've got to hide. If you feel like, oh, I probably give less than others, the tendency then is for you to hide. We don't want to have a culture here at Center Church where you feel you have to hide. We also don't want you to appear to be something that you're not, to give off airs like I'm, I'm this person or I'm doing this thing. We want all of us to have peace in our hearts in this area of life, to be open, to be willing to examine this together, to be honest, to not feel like it's a competition, to not compare ourselves to one another. That's not what we're going for. We want grace to guide us and to shape us. Only grace. Okay? So I'm going to share with you a phone call I received this week from someone at Center Church. And I hope that this can be helpful for us as we just process through this a little bit. So someone called me, ironic it was this week, and they said, I just want to share this with you. And they went on to share the story of kind of their experience with giving at Center Church. So they said, there was a period of time for us at Center Church, a a real period of time, not like just a month, a real period of time where we didn't give anything to Center Church. And as the years went by, our hearts began to soften. So they, they said part of the reason they didn't give money is because it felt like an obligation. And they felt like they didn't have space to do this. But as they sat in the culture over years, grace began to soften their hearts in certain ways. And they got to a point where the spouses felt convicted, compelled in this way. And so they made a decision. They said, we don't know where this is coming from, but we're going to give to Center Church sacrificially. And this decision for them hurt because they, they had to make choices to say no to things that they really enjoyed. And that was hard for them. But on this side of making that decision, this individual was sharing with me some unexpected joys that came out of that decision that they never anticipated whatsoever. So first of all, they never thought 
having a defined number for various parts of their life, like eating out was the example they gave, that having a defined number would induce joy. They thought it would feel constricting for them to say, this is how much money we have to spend each month. And that was part of the reason that they didn't want to do it initially, because they didn't want to give up this certain thing or things. And what they said is, we never expected this to be the case, but we actually found freedom and joy in knowing this is how much we have to spend this month. So, just one practical thing, right? They didn't expect this. This came out of the blue for them. Another reality is when they were not giving to Center Church, they said they didn't have needs. They could cover things just fine. As they started giving to Center Church, they found themselves at times having needs, where they needed someone else to kind of fill the gap, in a sense. Not all the time. It wasn't like a regular monthly thing. But what they found is that as people would give them gifts, as people would serve them or help them out in various ways, they actually appreciated that in a much more significant way. Whereas before, it's like, oh, we've got, we've got lots of that stuff already. But now that there was a need, they began to feel and experience God's kindness to them through these people. And there was a joy there that they experienced that they never experienced before. Because now they're experiencing Jesus' church functioning, being generous, serving them in these meaningful ways that before just seemed like extra. So there are some ways in which them making this choice to give in this way that was sacrificial, that God was kind to them. And, and I'm, not, I'm not preaching prosperity theology here. Give to Center Church so then God will give to you. I am not saying that at all. This is the experience of someone at Center Church. And I feel like their story can be helpful for us to provide perspective to wherever some of us might be. So they didn't expect to know God's grace in deeper ways, but that's exactly what happened in a surprising way for them. So, as leadership, we just want to invite you to wrestle with what sacrificial giving is. There's no unwritten rule here. And we don't want you to feel obligation, okay? But what we do want to encourage is that your giving would reflect the measure to which you have experienced Jesus' kindness. That, that there would be a correlation that goes on there. As a church, we want to be self-sufficient, okay? Not in the sense like a works righteousness self-sufficient, but just that we can handle our responsibilities. And the reality is, before those three gifts came in, we were 25% behind budget. And so, thank you, Jesus. We praise your name for being kind and generous to us. But the reality is, we'll find ourselves in that same spot eventually. 
And so we just want to lay this before you, that you would wrestle with this. We want to see the gospel advance, okay? I'm not looking for a bigger salary. That's not what this is about. We want to see the gospel advance. We want to be part of seeing God move in unthinkable ways in and through Center Church. Okay, so at the end of the day, this isn't about you. It's about you being overrun by Jesus' grace, that you would know his freedom, that you would experience his generosity towards you, and at the end of the day, we would not be like Ananias and Sapphira. We would not be trusting in our works. We would be trusting in Jesus' works, and in every part of our life, including giving, we would be responding appropriately. Okay, one last thing I want to finish up with here at the end of this story, and that is fear. Okay? After Ananias and Sapphira die, the church is full of fear, and we might think that's a natural reality because two people just died, right? Okay, we're going to be filled with fear, but I want to propose something here. They didn't have to feel fear. That church did not have to feel fear. They could have just as easily felt pride, right? I didn't do that. I gave more than them. I don't struggle in the way they struggle. The church could just as easily have felt pride rather than fear. If this was a competition, if this was all about performance, people would have been filled with pride. But people are filled with fear because they are recognizing that they are just like Ananias and Sapphira. They deserve that and didn't get it. Their understanding, their only hope is Jesus. And this is true for us today as well. It is good for us to revere God, to be convinced God is so much greater than we are. His power is vast. Ours is nothing. Our sin is great. His forgiveness is greater. We need Jesus. We need to trust in Him. We are needy, dependent people. We ought not be filled with pride. But we read this story and we can be filled with reverence for God to be serious about our Christian life, to understand it's not just, this isn't like, should I have Netflix or not kind of a thing, or should we watch Netflix tonight or not, or where should we go out to eat? I want to be serious about the Christian life. Okay? All right. I'm going to end with gospel application. So a sermon like this, I don't know how this lands on you. Maybe it feels heavy, maybe it doesn't, right? But we want to walk out of here reminding ourselves who Jesus is and what he's done. So I've got one point of gospel application for us today. Jesus, for us, became like Ananias and Sapphira. He did that for us. He died for our sin. We trust in Jesus so we don't have to fear the same end as Ananias and Sapphira. Jesus laid his life down in love 
He takes on our sin in love. And this ought to radically change our hearts and our lives. The love of Jesus destroys our pride and melts our fear. The love of Jesus destroys our pride and melts our fear.